Hello, I'm Ken Bruce. I appeared as a guest on My Time Capsule, and after that I had to give up a job I'd had for 46 years. <sighs> anyway, they want me to tell you that they've started a thing called Acast Plus, where for a small monthly fee you can get the podcast ad-free. For me, I think the ad's are the best thing in it. That Fenton Stevens, he does drone on a bit. Anyway, whatever you like, do something and have a go at it. ACAS Plus, my time capsule. Thanks, Ken. Charming. Anyway, to get my time capsule ad-free and for a bonus my time capsule, the debrief episode every week, subscribe to ACAS Plus. Details in the description of this episode. Thanks. Bloody Ken Bruce, what a cheek. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and each week I ask my guest who this week is Griff Rees-Jones, what five things from their life they think are significant enough to preserve in a time capsule, four things that they cherish, and one that they regret or loathe or are embarrassed about, and then we talk about them. Anyway, Griff has been a famous face on our tellies since the early 80s, when he burst on the scene, along with Rowan Atkinson, Mel Smith and Pamela Stevenson, in Not the Nine O'Clock News. This led to his long-standing partnership with Mel Smith as a performer in Alas Smith & Jones, but also as a writer and producer through their production company Talkback, which was a dominant force in British comedy, with such shows as Smack the Pony, Big Train, The Ali G Show and I'm Alan Partridge, among many others. As a presenter, he's made numerous documentaries about British rivers, architecture, and even his father's involvement in the war in Burma. On stage, Griff won an Olivier Award for his performance in Charlie's Aunt. And more recently, he's toured the country with his one-man show. I spoke to Griff in his magnificent house in London. In fact, in his magnificent and somewhat echoey kitchen, where I asked him five things he would put in a time capsule. And it was only when I listened back to the recording that I realised he'd chosen six things. Still, I've never been a stickler for rules. 
But anyway, unlike most of my guests, Griff immediately knew the one thing he wanted to be rid of. In fact, once we started the recording, it was the very first thing he said. Hope you enjoy it. Durrance, they're called. Durrance. Durrance. And then they were a press cutting agency. They basically, every mention that was made of you in the national press, when the press was solely media-oriented, I don't even know if they still exist. They must, they must be a press collecting, and I bet they do it on the internet as well. But every, but every right? Yes. So, I mean, nobody ever read them. They were just collected, and they used to be sent to the management office, who would then have somebody sort of stick them in a, in a, in a big sort of scrapbook. Mm. And these things started to accumulate. Now, if I was Oscar Wilde... Yes. <laughs> or Ben Elton. <laughs> Someone later on, in some future generation, would go, ooh, you know, let's look in. What a fantastic archive. Yes. But the archive actually means uh, episode four of uh, 11 series <laughs> of Smith and Jones is in every edition of the Bradford Argus uh, <laughs> and every local newspaper across the country has kept a record of what time it's on, often with a sort of syndicated view, not worth watching or something. <laughs> Here they go again. Here they go again, yeah. Back for more. Or, you know, not as funny as they were or something like that. You know. And this Thanks comment so is then reproduced yes. in the Bradford Argus, the, the Swansea Times and the, and, the, and the Shrewsbury Herald. But all of these are sent in by Durrance. If you get to the state of being a celebrity... For heaven's sake, take your manager aside one day, buy him a drink and say, don't waste money on that sort of thing. And in fact, you know, I think Rob, Rob Brydon said, um, at one point he realised he had to stop reading uh, Twitter and feed and all that stuff. Mm. Because you start by finding, especially if you've done something really good, and you've done something which is really well received. Mm-hmm. You cannot help but open pages and pages of gushing praise. Yes. And then uh, that's, you realise that that's not the way of the world. The way of the world is if, if you've been gushed over, you will be puked over. So it's only a matter of time <laughs> before, before the scales fall from people's eyes and they want to sort of go slightly, shall we say, in the opposite direction to tell you how rotten you are anyway. Uh, so, and then finding that that, that that opinion is spread like a, a ghastly... Well, virus is a very good word like a ghastly disease through the entire press clippings means that if you really want to find a way to start thinking about your purpose, value, or, or lack of value to the world in general, then reading press clippings, reviews, what people say about you, what they think about you privately, that's the worst thing. I mean, they say, people say, and always have done in the newspapers, that's why, you know, the anxiety of the modern age, which is... Uh, Social media. The social media mm. was the anxiety that went with being a television uh, presence, and I've lived with through through the eighties. Which this, this this terrible thing, thinking how can people write that about me? Oh, no. They wouldn't say it to your face, no. but they feel perfectly satisfied to, to fill column inches at your expense. You know, mm. by writing because you've done a play which they didn't happen to like, or or you're not their hero compared to somebody else who is their hero. Did they also collect? Um... So if you were in the, the letters page, mm. you would get that clipping as well, would you? 
Oh, everything. Oh, my word. Any mention of you whatsoever, anywhere in any... They had thousands of people, presumably, sitting in, I mean, in offices, going through papers and clipping and taking any name, and then it would be allocated. These things started to accumulate. And if you can imagine, and we were on television a lot in the yeah, 80s yeah. and early 90s, and, and, and so these vast files... And I have to say, very few of them sort of concrete philosophical disquisitions... Most of them just references, and I have to say, this is not just my turn. No. Let's go through them. Elton John, yes. in a terrible, terrible state of anxiety because of things that are written about him in the music press. Mm. Billy Connolly. And Billy Connolly, the much-loved Billy Connolly. Yes. He's totally uh, paranoid after a while and believing that everybody hated him in the newspapers because they'd started writing things. But, well, on you go. Newspapers that you have never read. Mm. Stephen Fry reading the Financial Times, you know. And Stephen, the most beloved of beloved people, that define the people he's done a performance. And he's been exposed, as what he believed, as, as a fraud. To you know, everyone. To everyone. So he has to get on a ferry and disappear to Bruges, you know. The point is that the only way to say that it's nonsensical, you know, as that's why... Married people have at least some advantage, and especially if you're married to somebody as sensible and beautiful as my wife. Yes. You know, she sits down and says, pull yourself together, you know, this is meaningless. Yes. So, I mean, it's partly this. When I first hit the stage, for example, I got extravagant reviews, fantastic things, almost like this was the next coming, you know, you've never... And obviously... You were an Olivier Award. Yeah, though. so I could say for this... Time capsule. And mm. into it goes, obviously, this copy of what Michael Billington said about me yeah. uh, when I first did Charlie's Art. But, 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 Michael Billington didn't waste much time with me. At least two years later, he was sort of saying, not really an actor, sort of, and yeah. being very disparaging. So, into that, it's much easier to throw into the con basket along with all of it social media, the mm. press, anybody, right. Don't go there. What I want is not actually in a time capsule. I've actually recently, because we've been clearing out the house and moving stuff around, it all arrived. I think they they shut down Talkback or any relationship with Smith and Joe's a little while ago. A lorry arrived. Joe, Joe, my darling wife, quite excited, and said, oh, look at this huge archive. And I've literally burned the lock. <laughs> I just, I started leafing through it, and it all started coming back, this sort of thing. Again, 90% saying the lovely... Mel and Griff, or we love them, 10% saying these hateful pair, and you go, I don't want to see any of it. It's all... So, uh, absurdly, I don't really want to do a time capsule, not a single bit of it, but I would put into that time capsule every reference to me written by anybody else ever. Good, bad, pointless, indifferent. (laughs) (laughs) Notices. Just everything. Notices. Notices from people who don't know you. Yeah, yeah. Just, Just go. The only thing that matters is you go and do a show. And that's why I do, I do a one-man show now. I go out and see my, the audience, and occasionally, in my dark night of the soul, I read, and don't even read reviews of other people. No. And, of course, in a funny way, it really perplexes promoters and producers because hmm. they don't understand what you mean. When you say, I don't... They say, you know, the Times want to come and review it in Wantage. And you go, no, it's all right. And they say, no, no, but we, they want free, uh, free tickets and we've just got to give them free tickets. No, no, don't give them free tickets. No. But, Griff, this means, you know, you'll get... No, but... No, but you don't understand. I don't give a fuck <laughs> about it to the degree of 
actually, even if they came and said, this is the funniest comedian since, you know, since Jerry Seinfeld, we've never really reviewed him before. Why have we been missing it? I don't want to know because I hate Dominic Maxwell. It's every opinion about everything. <laughs> His, his, and most of these... They, Look, if when you I could read, just be honest no, no, and open no, on no, this no, let podcast, me, I know you'd you, like this Tell me what you think. I have nothing but contempt for the fact that newspapers <laughs> even have a comedy review. Comedy is not a thing in itself, no. that's the point. It's just part of life. Life is full of, but it's full of, it's full of being serious, you know, uh, liking um, textiles, uh, <laughs> you know, it's got nothing, it's just part of things. It's not in itself a be-all and end-all of life to go and be sort of relentlessly funny. In fact, the company of people who, I'm, I'm not going to make, but I've been in the company, it's locked in taxis with well-known comedians who start doing their fucking act. Uh, wait, wait, hey, <laughs> hey, let's just talk about where we're going. Hello, I'm going, we're going for lunch now. I don't want to things. hear your act. I don't want to be, I don't want it all to be tried out on. Well, you may remember when we first, when we were young, Griff, and we would go for lunches and there were a very group of competitive comedy yes. people. Yes. And I remember distinctly the fact that people would never laugh at the joke. They would just score it, as it were. Oh, 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 that business. But having said that, that's brilliant. I mean, I know, and you know, and we know, very funny people. Yes. And to be around people who respond to the circumstances they're in by being funny about them, that's great. That's life. But people who go away, write jokes, and then they're around <laughs> table, they're limited things to start doing their impersonations of people and things like that. I mean, really, oh, I've, I've had very few reviews in my career, and I stopped looking at them when I realised that actually I would never mention them. And I thought, well, what's the point? Nobody ever mentions me. I, do, I, I think <laughs> once I had a review which said what Michael Fenton Stevens lacks in talent, he makes up for in gall. And I, I've always been proud of that. <laughs> Michael, that's a, that's a very well. That you could stare that, stow that away. But as I say, don't stow it away. No, yeah, Derrance. So we've started with the first thing that needs to go. But that's, that's good great. Yes, that's that out of the way. Us, that leads us on to what is worthwhile in life, and why do you want to keep these things? Mm. See, already, am I being funny? Not much help to you. No, the Just, world is not all about comedy. Greg. No, listen, Michael. Whatever you do, don't don't do desert island discs. <laughs> don't do it because <laughs> they rang me up and said we want you to do it. And I said, uh, oh, how lovely. Uh, and they said it's in three weeks' time. I said, I can't do it. I can't do it in three weeks' time. It's going to take me longer to think about the air. <laughs> That's not long enough. <laughs> and you know, the people who run Desert Island, just the wonderful people, they're so sympathetic to you. When you say, I've had, I'm really having struggles, they say, I know. We, everybody does. Everybody, let's see if we can help you. Where have you got to? Well, I've got it down to sort of 50. OK, let's, <laughs> let's go through those. I'd say, stop there. But you know the worst thing about doing Desert Island is? No. Once you've done it, you can't play it in your head anymore. Oh. No, because you're driving along in the car, something comes up and you think, oh, this, this wonderful piece of rigoletto. Is it, that's one. Oh, no, I've done it. I didn't include it. It's too late. <laughs> no, you missed it. <laughs> so your playlist of aid, you've already done it. You can't, you can't go back and go, oh, I'll save that up for when I do Desert Island Disc, because, you know, you've done it. They're not going to ask you that. We, we may have hit on the most fantastic programme idea. What? We should definitely get in touch with all the people who've been on Desert Island yeah. Discs and say, would you like to do Desert Island Discs? Two. Re re Revisited. Where I, was, where I went wrong. The songs I should have yes, chosen. Yes, just like politicians. What? Just 
In fact, it's a series of books, isn't it? <laughs> it is. <laughs> it, it'd be longer than most... Because poly- poly- that's essentially what political memoirs are, is just going through, the, I should have done this. This is what we should have done. This was my big achievement. So what do you think you would like to put into this that you, you treasure? Well, uh, I'm not very good at remembering things because it all passes... Uh, I have to explain that my life has been one gadarene rush... And I'm chief swine. I'm sort of, you know, charging along and yes. always have done. Every time somebody's come to me and said, do you want to do this? I've gone, oh, yeah, all right. <laughs> <laughs> and it wouldn't be much more sensible if, like so many comedians, I'd point out, sat down and said, yeah, I really love comedy. I must concentrate and get this sorted out. But I don't. Somebody says to me, would you like to go for a like sort of sail in a boat? Oh, yeah, I'll do that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and there's almost nothing. I have to say that Mel and I, uh, I wanted to write, I'm going to write a, a next book soon, but I thought I should call it Who Did We Think We Were? Because there's a sort of, you know, element to it where we just assumed in a funny sort of way. We got fed up with me. Mel and I met a man with grey shoes mm. and uh, always a, a big giveaway, really. Grey shoes, grey hair. At a party. He said, you remember me? And I said, no. And he said, I produced a film about you, about, which you did, about the <laughs> post office. And I said, oh, yeah, I remember, yeah, we came in, it was, it was a training film for the president. He said, do you know I made 150 grand out of that film? No. I said, really? And he said, well, I said, how? Well, he, he said, I've sold it all over the world, with the two of you all over the world. You got 500 quid a year. And I got, well, yes, exactly. <laughs> and he was sort of proud of the fact that he'd only paid us 500 quid and managed to sell it for him. At that point, as he walked away, I went and found Mel in the corner of the party and said, look, the next one of these we do, right... I'll, I'll produce it, and, and or we'll produce it with our own company. And that's exactly how Talkbacks started, was right. simply meeting people who were telling us in a sort of... How much money or, they don't have yeah, you. Or they were sort of, they were people who said, you know, we can do this for you. And you thought, no, 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 in a funny sort of way, I can do this for you. And, th- and of course, lots of people prefer to keep a sort of a giant wall. But if you're as untalented as the two of us... <laughs> You know, they like to preserve their talent. We know several people, do we not? I'm not going to name names, who are so talented that the guardianship of their own talent mm. is, the, is a principal thing they engage in for most of their lives. Because it's hard enough without running <laughs> yeah. a company around it. I don't know, certainly wouldn't want to run a company because they're actually spending too much time sort of, you know, polishing and working on the whatever it is that, that they're, they're elevates them. Long ago, thanks to Durrance, I realised that wasn't <laughs> the case. So I think one of my objects would be, actually, I've got a rather nice picture, which I'll show you, mm. of... Uh, I might take a picture of it and put it on my social media. I know how much you love it. Oh, OK, OK. Oh, I see, as long as you don't show me. No. Griff, would you like to see what I've written about you? Thanks, I no, don't care. no, no, no. I don't You've done an interview with him, but that's all right, as long as I don't see it. In fact, I became, I have to say, I became a mammoth uh, scandal on social media, but I refused to even acknowledge it. Yes. I was talking about doing an interview, and the interviewer said to me, he said, uh, you live in a big house, don't you, Griff? And I could have said, uh, no, I don't. <laughs> mm. <laughs> but, of course, I said, yes, fucking huge house. So he said, it must be terrible, the mansion tax coming in. I said, well, it would be, but it makes not much difference to me because the two of us, Joe, you know, we're old people now. So, you know, if the mansion tax comes in, it's time for us actually to vacate our house and give it to our younger people, you know. And I restored the house from absolutely nothing, so I bought it, luckily, you know, as almost a wreck. Mm. And then I said, you wouldn't really be able to do that anymore. 
I mean, if you wanted to do it again, you'd have to, you'd have to go to France because wrecks have all been bought up. Yeah. Headline in the Telegraph was, I will move to France if the <laughs> Labour Party get in. Oh, no. And it went completely and utterly nuts. Around the Every moron in the world sort of chipped in. Mm. The Guardian had a sort of pages on it and, and gave my address and oh, uh, okay. a plan of my house and... Uh, Everything and in order to the mirror led with a story about how my fortune had been made at the expense of the working people of Britain and uh, all the rest of it. And so, and I sat there in a state of astonishment. Wow. Had a massive, uh, um, not a massive, but a demonstration by class war outside the house. Mm. And the internet, and all my friends say, You've got to bring people in. To do, you've, you've, got to, you've got to defend yourself. You've got to go on the internet and say it was all a lie. And I said, well, I'm not, on, I'm not on the internet myself because of the Durham's experience. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ignore it completely. And it sort of, like all these things, fizzled out and was meaningless. And, and now I'm, tell, now I'm telling it to you, of yes. course. You don't know. I know. It's completely news to you. It really is. I have no idea. Exactly. No. So I, I didn't notice it. But had I seen it, I would have gone, oh, well, that's bollocks. Well, maybe... Not many people did. Not many, certainly not many newspapers. Do you know, I was on the shortlist for Beard of the Year. <laughs> and they took me off. Oh, no. It, as a result of this terrible thing that I'd said. <laughs> oh, Otherwise, God. I might have won Beard of the Year. What I want to say mm. is Mel and I were, you know, we always stayed together for the sake of the money. And we, <laughs> just in case... You're writing this all down, headline in the Telegraph. It's all going to be solved. This is a joke, by the way. Months and months. It's a joke. Months and months of headlines. And we were like a married couple, you know, only the sex was better. And this is a joke, by the way. It's a joke. (laughs) And Mel and I, effectively, you know, we split up in 1997. We had to keep meeting because of the lawyers. Yes. You know, and we did keep meeting. We were good mates. And uh, and that's also, you know, we didn't really know each other, as everybody wanted to say. And the thing is, I was like a wronged wife with Mel. So going into this thing, it's this picture of me and Mel doing a hotel, one of the funniest things, the things we love doing, mm. Mel and I, were being on stage telling bad jokes to each other. <laughs> <laughs> I remember once when we were trying to write uh, more on Spider Space, more of that later, uh, we were trying to write that film, we were in Siena. Mm. And Mel suddenly announced he needed to go to the races. And so we got in a car and we drove halfway across Italy to Grosseto, uh, to the races where there were track races. And I sat there reading a book while Mel put, studied form in Italian and laid bets. <laughs> what a man. What a man. On the man. horse racing. And you go, that's the sort of relationship. That is our relationship. And every night, in those days I still drank, and every night we'd go back and we were in the middle of a vineyard. Oh we'd start God. writing... And Mel would open a bottle of wine about, you know, for lunch, obviously. And by 10 o'clock in the evening, we'd just be lying on the floor of this castle, surrounded, if you can imagine, by barrels of Chianti. So, I mean, there was no way we could drink the castle dry. We just... (laughs) (laughs) We just had to stop. I'm not sure that's true. We had to stop at midnight. (laughs) (laughs) Crawl off to bed and then start again with the hangovers. That's one of the reasons why Morons about to say it's not the most successful film ever written. But... so I've got, I'm adding to this, this picture of me and Mel, which was painted by Jarvis Elwes. Ah, we're back to the picture. Yeah. I've worked out what are you doing. Oh, you see, what, what I'm doing. So this is an object. Ah. So this is have to go in the time capsule. Because Fantastic. In, in truth, um, what I want to establish against all the... When I went to Mel's funeral, 
I was like a wronged wife. I was like the wife turning up. All these blokes turned up, talked about the fun they had with Mel, you know, and they did this, <laughs> they did that, and all that. And that's everybody from Peter Finch and turning up to tell stories about good old Mel and everything, which, of course, was the point of the, of the point of the memorial service, except I'm sitting there going, you didn't know the half of it. <laughs> <laughs> what do you know? <laughs> you never had to share a bus with him. <laughs> <laughs> you did never try and get him to rehearse. No, exactly. It's all very well for you to say this. I do on. remember that frustration, though, Griff. I can back you up on that because I sat in rehearsal rooms with you saying, so when's he turning up? <laughs> the number of mornings I sat waiting for Mel to turn up for rehearsals with you. So, Will you tell Mel when you see him? When I see him. Yeah. <laughs> Carry this message to him. Because the fact is that Mel and I never had a row. We had a totally equal partnership in which he was the boss. And <laughs> <laughs> not really, but he was the sort of like, he was, he was the boss. That was the thing about Mel, wasn't it? I mean, in whatever situation he was in, he was Mel. He was the sort of top. He, was, he just yeah. couldn't, he never conceded that there was anybody else, any other dogs in the room, really, except subservient dogs. So the great thing, I'd say, I would have to put in my time capsule. Um, just trying to work it out. 25 years? with Mel Smith, and that picture sort of sums it up, because what it is, is it actually shows two things, is that Mel was rather beautiful. Mm. And uh, in our day, with the two of us, we were, you know, we made each other laugh, Mm. and we made a lot of people laugh. Uh, uh, Maybe not at the sort of elevated level that some people would have liked us to make them laugh. (laughs) But by God, we had some very... We had a massive adventure. Yes. And part of that huge adventure was the fact that we set up a big company and, and ran a big company. And we were a Melden directed a lot of films in the end. And, and uh, so that part of that huge adventure in life is is the reason I sit in this huge, infeasibly large house now. <laughs> so it does all link together. It's, it all links together. It does all link together, yes. I mean, it's what you said right at the beginning of the fact that you lead this this life, this frantic life. That where you never say no to anything. And this is my only advice to young people. You won't, you won't find that you actually... Because a lot of... I do meet a lot of serious actors who sometimes find themselves in very successful programmes. Mm. They say, oh, God, you know, I've been invited to do this and that, but of course I can't do them because they're all just exploitative uh, uh, things based on this huge success I've had. And what I really need to do is get back to doing, you know bit parts of the RSC. And I said, you have to go, no, don't, don't do that. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> My no. strongest advice is you only get one bite of this cherry. Go for it. Go for it while you have the chance. Yeah. Otherwise, I would. I really like you and Mel, the picture of you and Mel going in there. I think it's such an enormous okay. part of your life. There was always, <laughs> the end, the great thing about Mel was that we were a partnership. He was fantastic. The loyalty of a water buffalo, Mel. Mm. If he was your mate, he stuck by and did, you know, and so if there was an argument when we found ourselves in the thing, suddenly Mel, you, people would think they could get round it by going to see Mel. And he'd say, what does Griff think? Uh, uh, and have you seen the Laurel and Hardy film? Mm. It's exactly like that. Wow. That's and a it, lovely thing. It's really weird, but Mel also, there were moments, of critical moments, where, you know, there was some sort of point where it's like, that, it's like those films but. Uh, I'm watching the Narcos, Narcos yeah. at the moment. It should be not Narcos, Narcos. <laughs> and uh, in that, there's always that sense of you know loyalty to your uh, gang mm. is of vital importance. And uh, and that's you know if we had to have a Mexican standoff, you know, they will get out the pistol and aim it at the people. <laughs> 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 and 
it was a dirty, and it was actually, it, it was, there, were, there were sort of elements of dirty business involved in it. I mean, I don't mean we ever did anything illegal or wrong, but there were loads of people trying to exploit you and sort of, you know, and take, and take things away from you in a funny sort of way. And sometimes you had to go in with and sort of, you know, sort it all out and say, no, no, that's all right, we're okay, we do know what we're doing. Yes. The whole sense of, of the fun we had in the 80s, which people don't really realise, is that we had enormous fun. Yes. With talk back and all that stuff. We had a most incredible ride. It was a real roller coaster in and out, sort of doing things and, and just being deciding, OK, let's go put a suit on and we see if we can do this. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> So, so it was a great, great thing. And the funny thing is, there's a wonderful moment in um, Plaza Suite. Did you know Plaza Suite? Mm. Where Walter Matthau sits and his wife says, what is it? And they're sitting in the thing and she can't work out. It's his 60th birthday or 65th birthday. Yeah. And she says, what's the matter? Why are you like this? You've had this. You've made a fantastic company. You've, you've had brilliant children. You've done all this. Why are you so... And he goes... Because I want to do it all over again. Uh, and that's the that's the that's the that's the real truth. Yes. Anyway, so all that will sum up that. Okay, let's take a short break here for some ads. We'll be back with Griff in a minute. Normally being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back. Okay, let's find out what else Griff jones would like to put in his time capsule. But we need something which is much more important, and I'm going to put something very small in now. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to play it to you. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. 
Fantastic. That has to go in. Yes, just and that is. Cry. That's Elwin. Mm. Your grandson. Yes. Who is utterly adorable and. Uh, anyway, I mean, it's just one of those things that there he is singing Twinkle Trees. He's, uh, he's about 19, 20 months old now. Mm-hmm. Not yet two. Marvelous. But that's his uh, um, understanding of Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. And uh, he's just, uh, in every way, adorable. We we absolutely, we're sort of besotted. The whole family are besotted with him. Because sometimes children are um, sort of like angels at mm. different times in their lives. Mm. And although that may, may make me into a sort of silly old woman, um, that's I'm happy to be there. Yes. <laughs> because... Uh, Anyway, um, that's uh, it's so. It's so difficult to say much more Isn't about the the idea that somehow um, innocence and the value of innocence uh, is extremely valuable mm. to me. Um, that sophistication is not something I completely um, relish. I've never liked the cool world. <laughs> I've never been cool. I've always been overexcited. Almost every environment I've been in, I've met people who've gone, calm down. (laughs) (laughs) Stop looking so keen. Yeah. And what they really mean is be sophisticated like us. Mm. I hate cool people. I hate hip people. I hate people who are in the know about this sort of thing or always sort of of full of some sort of um, zeitgeist or what's going on. I'm an enthusiast, and if you don't get enthusiastic about something, and if you're not somebody who sort of really thinks this will be fun, mm. it doesn't matter whether you're involved in the theatre or you're involved in uh, sailing a boat or whatever you're doing. Yes. If you come at the thing and you don't sort of go at it with the sort of idea, one, we're going to go at it with a great deal of sort of enthusiasm and excitement, yes. and even if we're wrong, we're going to get excited about it, do you know what I mean? We're going to, we're going to do it right. And two, you know, that's what it's for. Is that sense of uh, that sense of living at this moment? I've done plenty of plays where um, it hasn't worked out, and it takes you time to realise that some will work out, some won't. Mm. You know, some things you go on and you're suited for, and other things. And of course, you spend more time pushing things around. But in a funny way, uh, that sense of excitement and innocence and the ability to just go, there's an innocent sort of openness about life. Um, which is uh, also what I love about that is that how true it is that it's not just charming but very funny. Yes. And children and a childlike status, well, it, it are a sort of clown-like status. I once had a brilliant idea for a television program, and I went to try and sell it to the morons who run television. Let's not beat around the bush. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want. To, I don't want. To, I don't want to get into sort of any sort of sort of uh, being abusive or or or, or no, just trying honest. to run down. I just got to say yeah. that the people who run television at the moment, for the most part, don't have two brains put together. <laughs> They're all looking over their shoulders, worried about who's in charge of the what people are going to say. You know whether this is identical to something that's been made. I mean, when we used to work in comedy in a talent business, you work in a talent business, you're used to meeting people. You go, wow, 
you really know. I'm, I'm going to defer to you, Mr. Enfield. Wow, what a fantastic performer you are, you know. I defer to you, Vic. You know, you're used to meeting people who... And producers, John Lloyd, you know, you're used to meeting people who know what they're talking about, things like that. You suddenly venture into the rest of the world of television and you meet people and you think, blimey. <laughs> you have no intrinsic intelligent talent or creative ability at all. You've just, you're simply a civil servant time server who's worked your way up to that position. And now you're in charge of me and telling me what's right and what's wrong for what you always call your viewers. Yes. Now that little rant, what on earth started me off on that? Well, a lack of enthusiasm, lack of people actually taking on a project, and even if they think it's wrong, not putting their heart and soul into it. Absolutely. And that's why, you know... Uh, I've always felt that, in a funny sort of way, if you if if you take on a job, whatever it is, I've never been able to resign from a job. I've been in jobs where everybody has jumped ship for the good of that that talent or whatever, mm-hmm. or that ego or whatever it is that they're burnishing or keeping in a box somewhere. Career. And they go, yeah, and they go, they find a way, and suddenly you wake up one day and find they've gone. Not been sacked, but they've managed to extricate themselves from yes. the task that they've put in front of them, and they're sort of. I've had people with medical reasons suddenly say, I've got to go on, go, go on with this project. And I've always felt, whatever you do, once you've committed to it, unfortunately, you're going to see it through to the, to the end. I mean, Mel and I, when we were doing head-to-heads, I used to write stuff, and we'd go out, because Mel wasn't a great rehearser, so we'd... But if you're a double edge, you do have to rehearse. So when we'd rehearse it, we'd know. He knew always news lines, and we'd mm. go and we'd sit on the stage in front of 2,500 people and try out a bit of new material. And it's, a lot of it, we'd go, this is great, this is fantastic. But every so often, you'd decide to do something which made you laugh, but you realise that nobody else is going to find it very funny. If you're on stage as a stand-up, you can go, OK, I'll just cut to them. There's no much point in me pursuing this, I'll just cut to them. If you're a double-out, you look into each other's eyes and you think, OK, we're off into the valley of death. <laughs> Let us now stumble down the edge of this ravine and see how long we've got the bottom of this before we can I know there's stuff on the horizon that will work. Yeah, yeah, but we can't just cut there. No, if we could just get there. We've just got to walk there. We've just got to walk there. I'm perhaps a little bit faster than we've been planning to. Yes. But you've done this. And that's yeah. the great thing about being in a, in a thing. So, yeah, so I would include uh, the thing and all the lessons that can be learned from being a child. You know, mm. Really, really important. So I'm a bit mm. immature. And I like immature people. And I like I like people who have a good laugh about things for the wrong reasons. So. What I love about the innocence of that fabulous recording of your grandson is that any performer listening to that mm. will be incredibly frustrated by the fact that just when he's about to get to the end of it, he sort of thinks, well, I've done enough now. Yeah, but he also... And then when he, knows he goes, needs to be... He will go, and I know the it. end. Yeah, I don't need to do it for I you. Know. It's marvellous. I'm and, having my and, tea. And he's, and he's not able to speak at the moment, really. These are his very first words. So the way he does it... But also, I remember what it was. I went to the, to, to the BBC with an idea called uh, Children Telling Jokes. And we went and did a lot of research and recorded it. And we recorded a lot of sort of six-year-olds, five-year-olds telling jokes. Brilliant. That's all they did. And they'd come on and they'd been told a joke in the playground, many of which they didn't understand, and they told the joke or they told the punchline first or whatever like that. It was absolutely one of the funniest things I've ever seen because the greatest comedians, like Tommy Cooper or whatever, have a clown-like quality to them where they uh, lose themselves in what they're doing. Mm. It seems as if they don't know what they're doing. They're not... not, 
sophisticated. They're actually on stage to let you sort of join in with their with their absurdity, with their lack of, seeming lack of direction. And that really good tellers of jokes do tell them with a vacant uh, quality to them, which makes them funny. They say, well, who's going to introduce it? I say, well, that's not the point. It just starts. It's just called children telling jokes. And they just tell, and it's just hilariously funny. <laughs> I should put it on the internet. So we still got it. So oh, you should. It's just, it was just uh, wonderful. Of, and they're not, they were only little children. But it was about innocence and about the value of, of information, not necessarily being yes. too well... And we all remember uh, ourselves when our own children yeah. were in the back of the car have got the idea of a joke, yeah. but not able to tell a joke. Yes. And so far they'll do knock-knock jokes, and they, yes. they're completely nonsensical. Yes. And they're the funniest knock-knock of jokes in are. the world. Yes, but they are. But they're brilliant. Anyway, all I'm saying is that it's all part of the parcel of the thing, so I'd like to keep that in because of that thing. Yes. Well, we definitely... I'm going to put that... Little right. video of your grandson in there because that makes all of us realise the wonder of the innocence of youth and, and that, that freedom that that gives you. I'm going to include a red ensign which hangs on the back of, the, of a chair in my study. It's been there now for the last nearly 20 years because it's, it's a sort of tattered thing that we flew when we took the boat... <laughs> I sailed to St Petersburg mm. and back. That was an amazing trip to do. And I was sort of sabbatical because I'd reached a point where I sort of uh, thought that that was it, actually. I thought the BBC had probably finally got to a point of not necessarily going to employ me anymore, but it didn't sort of matter because the other thing that I think is when I read about Certain people go, what am I supposed to do? You know, my career is at an end. I, my life is finished and, you know, what am I going to do? Nobody wants to employ me. You have to go, you're what? No, 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 This is your greatest freedom. This is the moment where you can say, well, I can do something else at last. Mm. <laughs> I mean, the funny thing is, the last few years, I've actually um, suddenly said, oh, I, I'm fed up with being told by people what to say and have a programme, so I'm going to stop doing that. Uh, so I got, I, I dismantled my production company. I didn't sell it, I just uh, got rid of it. And uh, I said, that's it. And I, I went back to going on stage and just walking on stage and telling stories because I can always, in a funny way, it's not a huge audience, but I go out and there's, you know, 300, 500, 600 people, and that's great. Uh, but the other part of me is going, I've got to do this. I'm greedy for experience because I simply don't believe life is about... There's no Durrance record of life to go... Um, did you actually produce a great sitcom and did, did you write the thing? I mean, long ago, I thought, I'd love to do a sitcom, but unfortunately, I've never managed to get a script together or anything like that, so who cares? It doesn't matter with the idea I'm going to bang my head frustratedly on doors that won't, aren't going to open. On the contrary, I'm not spending any more of my life being told to go away and do more work, you know, mm. on something that is never going to happen. So I'm going to go off and do the things that I really want, and I still do. That's um, great to have got to that well, point. Though, well, no, it? no, I don't think it is. I think it's. You know? I think in some sense I should have sat, sat down. I kept, and I think maybe it's not too late. I should be able to try and write a film or direct a film or do all these things. But on the other hand, I go, well, actually, do you know what I mean? Uh, the, the trip that we took up to the Baltic um, was a fascinating trip because I did it in order to escape. And remember when you were a student and you'd go off the afternoon and lie on a riverbank with a bottle of wine mm-hmm. and then somehow at about five o'clock you go oh wait a minute I better go back I've got an essay to write <laughs> <laughs> but I'm also going out to see mates so I better write the essay between now and think and somehow what you had 
was a capability at the age of 17, 18, or whatever, 19, to just go on that riverbank and forget about everything and drink with friends, then get up. And as you go on through life, you burden yourself with things which you can't go, you can't escape. And they never seem to escape. So you can't, even if you do have an afternoon off, you actually spend the afternoon thinking about the thing that you're supposed to be doing or whatever. Mm. So this was an attempt to just completely escape, to go like, to find myself like knife in the water in a reedy bit of Latvia or something like that, uh, just sort of drifting around in a boat with no horizon, no agenda, no sense of what was going to happen. Take almost a year, take a whole summer out and say, it doesn't matter, and achieve that sense of, of drift. And you must have a bit of drift in your life, you know, not this is the next thing, this is the next thing. You must. Otherwise, you're not living life. Mm. So I wanted to drift. And I went off with Bob Ring and Baines, and we set off from Faversham, early June. And the idea was we would go to Amsterdam with Bob, who's very interested in dope. And we were <laughs> going to go to Amsterdam. And we sailed, and the weather was so good, I just motored on, and we ended up in Borkum in a sort of muddy hole in the bottom of Germany. And Bob said, are we going, are we going to Amsterdam now? I said, no, we passed Amsterdam. <laughs> Bob. <laughs> it's one reason for going. Yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he wanted, he, he sat down and got a map and tried to work out how far it would be to go to Amsterdam by train, you know. And I said, I don't want to do that. We can't, we're not going to do that. We're going to go up through the Frisian Islands and we're going to go into, into the Baltic and, and just bomb, calm down. So we had to spend the whole evening calming down. And at the point, that point, I'd said on the boat, I said, look, before we go, I said to everybody, look, guys, we're going to Amsterdam, <coughs> where, you know, if you, need to have any, if you need to have any weed or dope or smoke anything, don't, you know, wait till you get to us. Don't bring it on the boat because, you know, yeah, there's a boat full of blokes crossing. The crossing the channel, and they, you know, with the radar they have at the moment, they'll be they'll be listening to us as we cross, you know. So let's just be sensible. So we get there, and we're sitting in Borkum. We've spent three days crossing, you know. And I said, God, I could do with a, I could do with a joint now. And they all pulled out. They said, Oh, I have some. <laughs> they, they completely ignored you. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, it wasn't as beginning of a trip. And we did this trip for a whole summer. But, of course, you want to run away. And I gradually realised that I was going to be the daddy. Uh, it's the, uh, apart from the role that I'd taken for myself by then in life. In uh, life. I was with two, uh, two perpetual drifters who, who never took on any responsibility of any kind whatsoever. So I'm the one looking at the map going, we've got to get on. We can't stay here. Come on. We've been in Visby for three weeks. Come on, come on, get aboard the boat, you know, and driving the whole thing and worrying about whether we were going to run out of fuel and where we were and all that stuff. So um, uh, that track was, uh, but it was part, it was a great thing to do. And if I look back on my, sort of the last 20 years, I can remember a lot of things, and a lot of trips that I've made for television, fantastic things that I've done, but I don't have the sort of detail in my mind that I have about that trip where we were in that boat and day after day just lying about in the boat and sort of sailing the boat on and exploring genuinely. You make a television documentary, it's all work, somebody's worked it out. Yeah. They need to know where they're going and how long you're going to spend and what you're going to do and uh, how you're going to film. That's how you make television. You don't, you don't really... Well, you get privileged access, fantastic privileged access, but you don't, you don't get that sense of just being able, if you want to spend the night and just stay because you found a good place, let's stay. So I loved doing that trip and it, it ended, went from June and we ended in October in a snowstorm, leaving Jotterburg and heading for Copenhagen where the boat then sat for another three years being repaired. <laughs> 
anyway, but uh, it was a fantastic thing. And, and to do with the exile is to do with the, the really beautiful boats. I'm afraid into my time capsule goes beautiful things. Mm. I'm, I've always had um, a love of really lovely things. And the boat, that, that boat was a very beautiful boat. But my Philip Rose. Is that the first boat? Yeah, 1956. She's really beautiful, mahogany boat. And people laugh at this, you know, Jonathan Ross, people like that. Could possibly understand what you meant, you know. And you go, no, well, if you don't understand what we mean, <laughs> then go back to your leopard skin sofa, you know, yeah. because that's I have always loved um, beautiful things. I'm afraid things of you know that I've sort of bought and collected and pictures and boats. That would be the skill of making the thing as well. Oh yeah, I mean the boat I have at the moment. She is one of the most beautiful boats ever built. So, How large is she? 57 foot. She's built as a racing boat in 1948 in America and she's really stupidly beautiful and elegant. And I poured money into it. If you ask what happened to all that money that you and Mel made, <laughs> what happened to your children's inheritance? <laughs> so that brings me to my next object, which was over there. That, which I'd like to keep. That right. picture. A picture. Because it's painted by my daughter. Oh, and uh, And... Uh, and she is a very skilled painter who doesn't paint enough at the moment because she's gone on to become a jewellery designer and I'd like her to paint more. I've had very important art experts and major figures from the world of arts and who've identified these. But we had uh, Alphonse Quaron, the director of Gravity and Roma, sitting in here, and he said, who painted this paint? And you go, that was my daughter. My daughter. Wow. So, uh, <laughs> I, um, I love her work, and I love that particular one, because that was a one she did in a bit of a hurry, and is sort of unfinished, and the style that she would, I'm sure, come to, she did, but it's not what she wants to do. So, from in my time capsule, a, a number of things would relate to my life and my... Uh, yeah, my, uh, that painting would absolutely remind you of beautiful things. It would remind me of the fact that, in this world at the moment, I spend... Too much time in galleries, art galleries. Well, as much. There isn't enough time, is she? There isn't enough time in life. So I will, you know, I will, at the drop of a hat, get on a plane, get on a train, travel off, find myself in Vienna for a weekend, just spending my entire time in galleries. So I do love uh, that sort of side of the world. And, um, yeah, so that will be definitely be my object. This definitely. picture, <clears throat> which, is, uh, which is painted by my daughter and it's good, and stands up yeah. alongside um, many of the other pictures I've bought or that people come to see, and that's the one they say, I love it. <laughs> Isn't that funny? That's great. And that's I've brilliant. never said, you should come and see my picture by my daughter. They've identified it infancy. So now I need my daughter to become an international artist of international repute <laughs> by getting back to painting. <laughs> then she's been very successful. <laughs> then I wouldn't have to sell the boat. <laughs> it's a lovely picture, actually. I think it's a really beautiful painting. I've always assumed that it was by somebody famous because your house is full of those sorts of things. So I've always, whenever I've seen it, I've assumed it would be something. I know, it's just something. wonderful, isn't it? Yeah. It's the it does stand up completely against this sort of thing everything else. Isn't it? Yeah. yeah, really lovely yeah. thing. I mean, one would buy it, I would buy it, if I saw it in a, in a picture um, in a gallery. And, anyway, that's enough boosting my poor daughter because it's time, my final object. The person who I've been lucky in my life to uh, discover when I was relatively young, 
and marry within a year of discovering her, and I'm still married to her and I still love dearly, and that's my wife. So I don't know quite... I can't put my wife or... Thing, but I don't know whether I can put the first um, a mini in it. Maybe that'd be the thing to do. That ah, you both... Well, she... Together. I didn't drive when right. I met her. And she was working on Not an Icon News. Mm-hmm. But she was a graphic designer. And you, as a result of your brilliant Donald Sinden impersonation, had gone from the first series to... Yes, yes. I'd played various parts in the first series. Uh, Donald Sinden amongst them. Yes. Uh, and lots of things. And, uh, and I didn't, luckily... I mean, because usually people have arguments with me, but they didn't have an argument with me. This <laughs> <laughs> so they promoted me to being in, uh, in it, and then you know that sort of catapulted me into my unworthy career. But uh, what was the most marvellous result of that was that I was single at the time, and we were just working on the book. But it was quite an exciting time to be sort of single and everything because it was like being a pop star to be in not it's the second series, the first series. Let's be honest. I did my Don Sinton, but the rest of it was rubbish, and. Uh, People don't, people don't really remember that, that the first series was pretty well <laughs> coruscated and excoriated and, and uh, sort of, you know, uh, generally thought of as not being a huge success. Anyway, and then oh, I, I came along. I really, I really, I think I really made not that. What do you mean? You're uh, saying that uh, Mel and Rowan basically own their they, career to They you. probably do. Probably, I think, yeah, I, probably. I think it's time to write the history books. So if you go mm. back to Durrance and look it up. <laughs> John Lloyd said to me, he said, oh, I've got to, God, like this. He said, I've got to go out with it. I've got to, we've got to, I've got to entertain these two girls who, who been working on the book, you know, and come with me because it's going to be such a boring evening. So I said, yeah. And one of them was Joe. And Joe, in those days, lived in, up in somewhere, Finchley, or not off the Finchley Road, but she drove a car. She had a Mini. And I was, in not the right clock news, but unable to drive... Probably earning less than her at that stage, in, you know, because they paid us, I think, the equity minimum for me. You know. <laughs> and I used to get very drunk in those days. Uh, well, I haven't drunk since 1983. Wow. So and when I met her, I was, I was sort of, uh, I was a bit of a, a lush. But uh, she gave me a lift bag in her little mini. And uh, I'd been making woo to her most of the evening. And as we went back, I think that night, I proposed to her and said, you know, I must marry you, something like that. I did marry her a year later, and we're still married 38, 39 years later, and um, um, she is uh, uh, just a marvellous person. How lovely. As everybody knows, who knows me, who knows the whole world, or close friends, she's uh, had to put up with a lot, I would think, probably. Most people would say to her, how do you put up with him? Most sort of more sophisticated women say things like, how would you put up with him? Sort of mm. thing. I've heard them say that. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, you know, I think we've had a bit of a roller coaster life and we've done some pretty extraordinary things. Uh, but um, Joe is like a very sensible person, which I think is a very important part of a strong marriage. Because uh, I'm not a very sensible person. So I, uh, when I was in what was it called? An absolute turkey, and that was a big hit, and a success, and everything. I was going through a bit of a mid- midlife crisis, and um, in fact, it's in Stephen Fry's book. We used to go every night after the show um, to play poker in a top room in uh, the Groucho, and we'd stay there with Keith Allen and various other people until uh, till about 
four in the morning, five mm. in the morning, but four nights a week, you know, we do this and play poker. And I'd come home at sort of six in the morning and stumble into bed and then go off to the play, you know what I mean, and come back. And uh, Joe never said anything. You're, I have to say that Joe's just sticking her head through the door now, as you. Well, you know what I mean. So I she's mean, the, it's the demonstration of how of exactly what you're saying. No, you know what I mean. If you're living with a willful sort of bossy sort of person, and then you start to try and say "don't do that" or whatever, you're going to. It's not a recipe for things. So to know that there's yes. a sort of sense of, of I mean, Joe's incredible intelligence and sort of uh, and, uh, understanding of the way the world works is what she has. We both chose well. My wife tells me that on our first date I said to her when we're married mm-hmm. and I don't remember saying it but uh, well, I don't either because I was very very drunk but, <laughs> uh, and I, then for a year apparently I used to propose marriage whenever I was drunk and then forget about it the next day <laughs> eventually she's waited to catch you when you're sober well sort of like that was necessary and eventually I gave up the drink completely three years later mm. and uh, said am I married what when did that happen <laughs> <laughs> what's her name <laughs> oh, how lovely. We're both, I mean, I say, very lucky men to have found that sort of uh, relationship. So definitely Joe is going to get into the time capsule. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, thank you, Griff. Thank you. I'm going to say thank you, Griff OBE. Oh, how sweet. Yes. Congratulations. That's the one thing that is quite easy to forget about. Yes. I'm going I'm to put it at the end of letters that I send to anonymous <laughs> people. Or as the Welsh say, oh, bloody hell. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Griff. Pleasure. You have been listening to my time capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Griff jones You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for all the latest things about my time capsule, and more specifically, a photo of the painting of Griffin Mel that was one of Griff's time capsule items, and also a photo of his daughter's painting. All you have to do is search at my TC pod. Or you can follow me, at Fenton-Stevens. You can subscribe to this podcast, and if you do, you'll get a free download of all episodes. You can subscribe on Acast or your own favourite podcast provider. And if you have the time, we'd be very grateful if you could write us a short review or rate us. Actually, nobody's written a poem yet, but thinking about it, I suppose there aren't that many things that rhyme with capsule. Papsule. No, I can't think of any. Oh, well. My Time Capsule is a cast-off production. The producer was John Fenton Stevens, and the music was by Pass the Peas Music. Hope to see you again soon. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>